Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1. Looking at verses 17 and the first part of 18 this evening, we'll read the entire Christ hymn, verses 15 through 20. Please join me in prayer and let us ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Our great God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of Your law, to behold Your glory, to be humbled to the dust and to acknowledge and recognize and live for the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Be glorified in this service of worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Colossians Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Once again, we come to this magnificent hymn of praise to Christ in Colossians chapter 1. This hymn is one of the high points of biblical Christology, teaching on the person and work of Christ. Remember that the church in Colossae was threatened with false teaching, a false teaching that has come to be known as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy maintained that Christ was great, but he was not enough. Christ was great, but not enough. According to this false teaching, the universe is filled with different kinds of spiritual powers, and you cannot achieve ultimate spiritual fullness without taking all of them into account. You need to appeal to other cosmic spirit authorities in order to find spiritual fullness. And so, church at Colossae, it's great that you found Jesus. He is good, but he's not going to get you all the way there to spiritual fullness. Christ is great, but he is not fully divine, not fully supreme, sovereign, or sufficient. That is the Colossian heresy that Paul wanted to destroy. This famous hymn of praise to Christ in verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1, it can be divided into three sections, two main stanzas with a transition in between. Stanza 1 is verses 15 and 16, which we saw last time. The transition is verses 17 through 18a, first part of verse 18, which we'll look at this evening. 
And stanza two is verses 18b through 20, which we'll see next time, Lord willing. By way of review, the first stanza, verses 15 and 16, focused on Christ prior to his incarnation and earthly ministry. Verses 15 and 16 fix our gaze upon God the Son in his pre-existence. In other words, that first stanza of this hymn focuses on God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, as God in and of himself. As fully God, identical with the divine essence, God the Son is uncreated. As God, God the Son is the uncreated instrument of creation as well as the goal of creation. All things were made through him, instrument, and all things were made for him, goal. That's what we considered last time in verses 15 and 16, the first stanza of this hymn of praise to Christ. And now looking ahead to the second stanza, verses 18b through 20, which we'll consider next time, the second stanza of this hymn shows us God the Son as Redeemer. Not only is God the Son Lord of all creation, He is Lord of redemption as well. As God, in and of Himself, as the one through whom all things exist, as the one for whom all things exist, as this all-sufficient one, God the Son belongs in a most wonderful manner to the church. Without losing his self-contained deity, without losing his lordship over creation, God the Son has given himself in a special manner to his church, which is his body and of which he is head. While all of created reality exists through him and for him, while all of created reality is held together by him, it is only his church who glorifies and enjoys him as Redeemer. All of created reality, every person, every molecule of space, every nanosecond of time, all of created reality stands in intimate relation to God the Son. But as intimate as that relationship between creator and creature is, as intimate as the relationship is where all created reality exists through God the Son for him and is sustained by him, there is a deeper, more intimate relation that God the Son has with only one portion of his creation. God the Son has given himself to his church in a special way. The church stands in a deeper, more intimate relation to God the Son than any other portion of creation. Why? Because the church knows God the Son as Redeemer. That is an overview of this wonderful hymn in verses 15 through 20, a review of what we saw last time, and a preview of what we'll see more next time. The first stanza of the hymn, verses 15 and 16, focuses on God the Son as Lord over creation. The second stanza of the hymn, 18b through 20, focuses on God the Son as Lord over redemption. And so as we come to the transition of the hymn, 17 and the first part of 18, the transition between the two main stanzas gives us a glimpse into both of those main stanzas. Within the transition of this hymn, verse 17 rounds out what it means that God the Son is Lord of creation, 
And the first part of verse 18 introduces what it means that God is the Son is Lord of redemption. We focus on both those aspects of Christ's person and work at this point in the hymn, the Lordship of God the Son in creation and in redemption. And we see this in three ways. First of all, God the Son has priority. God the Son has priority. That's there in the first half of verse 17. And he is before all things. Verse 17 refers back to the first stanza of the hymn. It speaks of God the Son as Lord of creation. We are looking here at God the Son who is sovereign over creation apart from redemption. Now here, Paul makes an emphatic point that doesn't quite come through in translation. More accurately, in verse 17, Paul is saying, and he himself is before all things. Emphatically, it is God the Son who has priority, who is before all things. Nothing in all creation, no angel, no government, no group of men, no school, no movement, no fad, nothing in all creation has this kind of priority. It is God the Son who has priority over all creation. What Paul is saying here of Christ is true of Christ as the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. But what is he saying? What exactly is Paul saying about God the Son here? Again, he himself is before all things. This might sound like a reference to temporal priority, a priority in time. One could argue that God the Son is sovereign over all things because he existed before all other things existed. That may be true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. To say that Christ has a temporal priority over all things could be twisted into saying that Christ is a creature, and we want to avoid that conclusion like the plague. If Christ is a creature, he may have claimed to being the first creature, and he may have claimed to being the highest creature. But if Christ is a creature, he is still subject to limitation and change and becoming an inability and weakness, just like you and I are. If Christ is a creature, then he is not the creator and sustainer of all things. And if he is not the creator and sustainer of all things, then you and I are not here right now. To affirm merely that Christ has temporal priority, priority in time over all things would be to affirm that Christ is a creature, merely a bigger version of ourselves. And what could sustain us, much less save us, that is a bigger version of us? In that case, the Colossian heresy would be correct. You and I would definitely have to go elsewhere to find spiritual fullness. Thankfully, this is not what Paul is saying. Verse 17 is similar to verse 15. They are similar in this way. In verses 15 and 17, Paul is not speaking of something that Christ became, but of something that Christ is. Verse 15, Christ, God the Son, is the image of the invisible God from all eternity. The second person of the blessed Trinity is identical with the divine essence, and he is eternally 
the Son of the Father, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. And similarly, in verse 17, God, God the Son did not become something with respect to all things. Rather, God the Son is before all things. Simply put, God the Son is. He, his existence is timeless, not time-bound. He had no beginning. He is. God the Son's existence is of a different quality, is essentially different from your existence and mine. He is creator, you are created. He is the sustainer, you are sustained. He is independent, you are dependent upon him in every way. His existence is of himself, your existence is of him. J.B. Lightfoot puts this all together for us. Lightfoot explains what Paul means when he says that he, God the Son, himself is. Lightfoot says in verse 17, himself refers to the personality of God the Son, and is refers to the preexistence of God the Son. Personality and preexistence. It is God the Son himself who has priority, reference to his personal existence, and it is God the Son who is, a reference to his timeless, eternal existence. God the Son is absolute and underived. He is self-sufficient and self-complete. He is timeless eternity. His priority over all things is the priority of God over mere creatures. God the Son is the uncreated creator. His priority over all things is the priority of the God who is over all things that become. So, if that is the case, why does Paul say he himself is before all things? Before sounds like a time marker. Well, before is a perfectly good translation, but other translations bring out the qualitative, the essential distinction between creator and creature. Paul could be translated here as saying this, speaking of God the Son, he himself is more important than all things. He himself is above all things. That really gets out the essential distinction between God the creator and the creature. So God the Son, as God, is more important than all created reality, which is not God. God the Son, as God, is infinitely above all created reality, which is not God. All that exists in time, including time itself, exists because God the Son is, who is not bound by time. All that exists in space, including space itself, exists because God the Son is, who is not bound by space. Herman Ritterboss summarizes, the priority of Christ does not express merely an abstract priority, but an absolute dominion of Christ over all creation. The priority of God the Son over all created reality is the priority of infinite, eternal, unchangeable creator over finite, time-bound, fluctuating creation. Creation at every point derives its existence from this personal, timeless creator. That is the first point, the priority of God the Son. Secondly, we see God the Son, Lord of Providence. 
God the Son, Lord of Providence. That's in the second half of verse 17. And in him, or by him, all things hold together. Here Paul shows that there is a reason that all of created reality holds together. There's a reason that all particulars are particulars. There's a reason all universals are universals. And there's a reason that all particulars and universals sustain the relation to one another that they do. For millennia, philosophers have not come to agreement on why things are the way they are. How do we account for all things being similar to each other but distinct from each other? There must be a unifying principle that explains all things. The Apostle Paul would say, yes, there is a principle that unifies and explains all things, but this unifying principle is a person, God the Son. God the Son is the personal principle who unifies all things without letting those things lose their distinction and who distinguishes all things without letting those things lose their unity. All of creation, Paul is saying here, has coherence because God the Son makes all things cohere together. That word translated here in verse 17, holds together. Let me read you some other translations I found. This will highlight to us how God the Son providentially orders and governs all things. It could be translated this way. All things continue to exist in Him. All things continue in being in Him. He holds all creation together. To put it crudely and basically, God the Son is the glue that holds all of creation together. Without Him, everything falls apart. If Christ were a mere creature, the fabric of the space-time continuum would, would dissolve into nothing. If Christ were less than God Himself, we are not sitting under the preaching of the Word right now. Everything d- dissolves into nothing. The continuance and permanent existence of all things depends on God the Son. God the Son unites all things and holds them together. He is the reason for orderliness and balance in creation. All things are ordered by Him, upheld by Him, and have meaning in Him. You exist because you are held together by God the Son. You exist in an ordered and God-revealing universe by the agency of God the Son. Facts connect to other facts because all facts are created replicas of the infinite knowledge of God focused here in the second person of the Trinity. Hendrickson is helpful here. Because of God the Son, there is unity and purpose in all of nature and history. The world is not a chaos, but a cosmos. It is an orderly universe, a system. Everywhere there is coherence. It is the Son of God's love who holds in His almighty hands the reins of the universe and never even for one moment lets them slip out of His grasp. And so all of nature, all of history, all of life is upheld by and sustained by Christ God the Son, the one in whom all things are held together. Thirdly and finally, Paul moves to God the Son, Lord of redemption. That's in the first portion of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
So, as some commentators indicate, we make a transition in the transition. Verse 18 looks ahead to the second stanza of the hymn. From verse 18 onward, we're now looking at God the Son as Redeemer. Verses 18 through 20 focus on God the Son who is sovereign not over creation, but over his church. Herman Ritterboss summarizes it this way. This cosmic significance of Christ in his preexistence now finds its counterpart in his redemptive work. And so just as we look a little bit, get a few snowflakes off of this glacier before we move on to redemption next time more fully, this is what I want you to appreciate turning from Christ's lordship in creation to his lordship in redemption. As God... As creator of all things, as sustainer of all things, Christ belongs in a special way to his church. God the Son did not give himself to his church because he lacked something in himself, because he was lonely and needed companionship. He was eternally and inherently essentially self-sufficient with the Father and the Spirit. He did not lose his divinity. He did not lose his creatorhood. He did not lose his providential ordering of all things in giving himself to his church. Retaining all these things, being who he is, as that God, as that self-sufficient God, he gives himself to his church. Wouldn't we expect that this one who is God, the image of the invisible God, the one who is highly exalted over all creation, the instrument of creation, the goal of creation, the one who holds all creation together, wouldn't we expect him to be the head of creation, the head of the universe, the head of a nation, a despotic king or ruler? We are surprised again by this God who is unlike us in seeing that this God who is unlike us comes to be with us as Redeemer and as Lord of his church. Just as creation cannot exist without God the Son, the great creator and sustainer, in a more wonderful way, the church cannot exist without God the Son, the great Lord and Savior of his church. This makes, I should say rather, he makes the church what it is. The church is not a social club. The church is not whatever she votes to be by a 51% majority. The church is not a collection of isolated individuals. To know that the church is the body of Jesus Christ changes everything. The church is the body of Jesus Christ united to him for everlasting redemption and submissive to his supreme lordship to say nothing else of our union with each other as members of his body. Again, Herman Ritterboss comments on what it means that Christ is head of his church. The church has its origin in Christ, and it therefore is dependent on him as the one who has prepared the way for it and to whom it owes its existence. Head, the terminology of head, points not merely to superiority, control, or rule. It does. But first of all, to a relationship of beginning 
which is determinative for the whole of continuing existence. There is no body, there is no church without the head, Jesus Christ. He makes the church what it is, and the church submits to him absolutely as head and king of it. It is Christ who makes the church what it is. The church does not make Christ what he is. He makes the church what it is. Christ makes the church his own. Think of how the the Confession of Faith, chapter 25, summarizes this universal church that I think Paul is talking about here. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We submit to Christ as our head, he who is supreme. We take orders from him and from him alone, and we find all of our growth, all of our spiritual fullness that the Colossian heresy says you need to look for elsewhere, we find in abundance in Jesus Christ, the head of the church. As Lord of over all creation, as the creator and sustainer of all things, Christ has redeemed a people for himself to be his new creation. As Lord over all peoples, Christ has redeemed a people for himself to be his special people. As Lord over the world, Christ has redeemed a people from the world to belong to him in a new world, the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Hendrickson, again in his Colossians commentary, notes that Christ is head over the church in these two basic senses. Christ is organic head and Christ is ruling head. As organic or or living head, Christ causes his church to live and to grow. The body doesn't give the head life. The head gives the body its life. We'll see this later on, Lord willing, in in our Colossians series. Just flip over one chapter to chapter 2 and verse verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19, speaking of those not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It's the same thing Jesus himself talks about in John 15, that in the vine, the vine is self-sufficient and is able to confer life from itself to the branches. On their own, we the branches have no life in ourselves. We dry up and die on our own. But in the vine, abiding in the vine, we find all that we need for life and godliness, all manner of spiritual fullness that the Colossian heretics told the Colossian church to look elsewhere for, we find in abundance in Jesus Christ, the head, the vine. Or in Ephesians 4, where Paul there says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body does not have any self-sustaining life, any self-governing principle to grow itself, but in the head, the body has more than it needs for this life and the life to come. Christ is organic head, and Christ is also ruling head. 
He exercises authority over the church. Hendrickson says, in fact, he exercises authority over all things in the interest of the church. The Lord of creation works all things in creation for the good of the church, for a small subset of creation. Ephesians 1, 19-23, what is the immeasurable greatness of his, God the Father's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is what leads Craig Troxell to comment using the James Bond imagery that for Jesus Christ, the world is not enough. He gives himself to and, and exercises his redeeming lordship in a special way to his church. A small subset of his creation that he gives himself more fully to. And this providential ordering of all things, the special providence that God exercises, that God the Son exercises, summarizes, summarized in the Confession of Faith, chapter 5, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. You cannot conceive of the church apart from its glorious head, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That church who does not submit to, who overtly wants to rebel against the head and king of the church devolves into a synagogue of Satan. But the church, however weak, however oppressed by the world, however close to being snuffed out by the world, that church who observes the lordship and acknowledges Jesus Christ as head over it will be preserved by Jesus Christ and kept safe until the end. As the martyrs of the early church would say, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. Because Jesus Christ is our head. James Bannerman comments on the organic union of this body with the head and the parts of the body with one another. Just as the indwelling of the Son of God and the human nature of Christ richly endowed and gloriously exalted that nature with all spiritual graces and gifts and powers unknown to any other person, so the indwelling of Christ in his church in a way and manner unknown to individual believers, exalts and endows the church with gifts and graces and powers which no Christian individually possesses. Are you staggering in your growth in grace? Maybe you have not joined with the body which is, of which Jesus Christ is the head. He indwells his whole church in a way that he does not indwell individual believers. So to be united to this head is to be united with all other members of his body. To come in this close connection with him is to come in a close connection with them as well. And so to draw things to a conclusion, do you see a little more from last time into this, this transition how this kills the Colossian heresy, which in some way 
shape, or form continues in our own day. Jesus is great, but you need to look elsewhere for things that Jesus can't provide. What can Jesus not provide? He's the image of the invisible God. He is God himself. He's the one through whom and for whom all things exist. He's the one who holds all things together. He's the one who makes his church what it is. What are you looking for that Jesus doesn't have? You're looking for the wrong things if that is the case. But if you're looking for eternal life, salvation, redemption from sin, forgiveness of your sins, his kingdom, which is a kingdom of life and light and righteousness that undoes the present evil age that Adam brought in in his disobedience, you find all you need and more in God the Son who has fullness of life in himself. Through him, all things were made. You can't add to his creative fullness. By him, all things hold together. You can't add to his providential fullness. In him, the church finds salvation. You can't add to his redemptive fullness. So whether with respect to his lordship over creation, the only thing required of poor creatures like you and me is to acknowledge and receive of his fullness. And you need to repent of your sin and acknowledge his fullness, his lordship, or his lordship will turn against you for your eternal damnation. More importantly, the only thing required of poor sinners like you and me is to receive his saving fullness. Not look for something outside of him, but look into him, draw from him his saving fullness, receive him in all of his benefits, and acknowledge his lordship. Again, Herman Ritterboss, the church is directed toward him, toward Christ, in the whole of its existence. Everything the church is about, whether universally or whether covenant Presbyterian church is about, is directed toward the lordship of Jesus Christ. Acknowledge his lordship. Maybe you have heard about it time and time again. Bow the knee, repent of your sin, Acknowledge not your lordship over yourself. Acknowledge his true and supreme lordship as, as risen from the dead, which we'll look at more next time, and acknowledge that he and he alone is God the Son, Lord of creation, sustainer of creation, and Lord of a new creation, his blood-bought body, men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation who find fullness of life in none other but him, and him alone. May God be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of his word that we would glorify his son in all things.